Before we dive into this week's episode, I want to reach out to you with a very special message. This month marks the start of LARB's year-end matching grant drive, where all donations will be matched by an anonymous donor. When you support LARB, not only are you supporting the work that we do here on the LARB Radio Hour, but you're also supporting all of the writers and editors who are publishing criticism, original fiction, essays, and poetry, both on our online website and in our print magazine. Any donation to LARB between now and December 31st will go twice as far thanks to this matching donation. We hope you'll consider donating at lareviewofbooks.org backslash donate. Again, that's lareviewofbooks.org backslash donate. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my two lovely co-hosts, Eric Newman and Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate and Eric. Hi. Hi to you both. And I'm so excited to have you both here to talk about the best of 2023 and the worst. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> So fun to get to do this with you every year. So let's just get straight into it and start with books. What are some of the best books of the year? Okay, so I'll start. I limited myself to pick only one book that we had covered on the radio show this year because I feel like otherwise it's like you all know all the stuff that we've <laughs> that we've been reading. So for me, the one that was that we did cover on the radio show this year was Justin Torres's Blackouts. It is just a book that I could not put down, which is a very rare thing for me. I find like increasingly fewer and fewer things that I'm super resonant with, but this one just had me from start to finish and hit on all levels. Just like a great story, a great idea, a great like conversation about queerness and history. Loved it. The other one that I've been reading in the wake of the ongoing conflict in Israel and Palestine is A History of the Modern Middle East by William Cleveland and Martin Bunton. So this is actually, it is a straight up history textbook. And I wanted that because I just felt like I was getting so many conflicting kind of messages. It's been hard to kind of sort through. I'm sure that listeners resonate with this. It's hard to sort through social media. There was also a lot of emotional turmoil, you know, kind of not knowing exactly how to feel and having my feelings change seemingly from one day or hour to the next. And so I wanted something that was just a dry history because I realized, like I, I'm sure many others do, there's so much I don't know, like I really don't understand about the conflict, about the history of Palestine, the history of Israel. So I wanted to dive in with this. And I found this particular edition, I believe, goes all the way up to 2016. So you would still want to do some of your own research. But it was a great, fascinating background of the region from basically like 500 AD until the present. So really, really interesting. Highly recommend the other book that I wanted to recommend was a 2016 biography, so it kind of comes out of nowhere, but it's Last Girl Before Freeway, The Life, Loves, Losses, and Liberation of Joan Rivers. This is written by Leslie Bennett. It is, Joan Rivers has such a fascinating story, like she's such a complicated character. She's, on the one hand, incredibly liberal, we would say liberated also, you know, she's a woman that was really doing it for herself at a time in comedy when that really was not quite possible. 
but she's also a very conservative woman. So it's like this, this push and pull. And also the, you know, she also had a husband who committed suicide. You know, she's been through so much and it is truly like a fascinating life. So if you love Joan or if you don't like her, kind of of the way that she didn't quite meet the culture, I think after the 2000s, but it is a fascinating story about an absolutely fascinating woman. So those are my recommendations for this year. Ooh, great Rex. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, well, I'll go. I found myself reading many memoirs this year. Mm. Oh, why? I don't know. I just, I, <laughs> I guess it's a genre I, I really like normally. And I happened to come across some really good ones this year. So one of them was called Don't Call Me Home by Alexandra O'Dare, who is a friend of mine. And this is a book mostly about her relationship with her mother, who was the Viva superstar. And she was an Andy Warhol superstar. And they lived in the Chelsea Hotel. They traveled all over the world together. They kind of had a maybe you'd call it codependent relationship where who was the who was the mother and who was the daughter was a little unclear. And um, who was taking care of whom was a little unclear. Um, And it's just such a beautifully done, very, very funny coming of age story, but also a story about kind of, you know, the ambivalencies of of family and intimacy. And it seems like anyone would want to have a really colorful childhood and have all these adventures and, and they sound fun, but you can also see see it from another side as well. So it rides that line. And I like that the ambiguity a lot. And it's hilarious. Another memoir that I really liked this year, uh, it came out in 2013, but it was reissued this year. It's called Whiteout by Michael W. Clune. The Secret Life of Heroin is the subtitle. And it's an addiction memoir. Also incredibly funny, incredibly inventive. I think it addresses addiction in a way that I've never really read before. Because although it's not a scientific book, there is some almost like quasi-psychological science about the way drugs get in your brain and corrupt your memory and how they really form like the nucleus of all memory at a certain point. And it's the kind of thing where I feel like it would check out if you like looked at addiction neurologically, you know, but it's written more poetically. It just really translates the complications of addiction and the kind of deep hole drugs can have on people in a way that makes it so visceral. And um, where I finally, I think, after many, many years of not quite understanding why people go back and back and back over and over again, this book really makes it clear in a very sympathetic way. And it's also just so funny and really inventively written. Another memoir that we covered on this show is by Christina Rivera Garza, Liliana's Invincible Summer. And that was, I thought, just a really creative approach to telling someone else's story, to recreating someone within their own words, kind of like a multi-dimensional portrait through a lot of different means. And I thought that she was able to really make me feel that I knew her sister who was murdered in a way that I, it was very strong, that I, I really felt this person. And that's so hard when you're addressing a loss to recreate the person who's gone. So I I thought that was a powerful book. And I also want to give a shout out to Earlier by Sasha Frere-Jones, another great memoir that I spoke to Sasha and 
creatively told, non-chronological memoir. I loved that structure. I thought it really got at his life in a non-conventional way, but that deeply translated his life. And the other book that I want to mention is Lydia Davis's most recent book of stories called Our Strangers. And we also had Lydia on the show and I hadn't read a book of Lydia Davis stories in a while. And I loved this book. The title story, as I mentioned in the interview, was just so powerful and said so much in just a few pages and really got at the way we relate to our neighbors and strangers in our lives and the intimacy that we can share. And I just thought it was such a knockout, powerful story. So I recommend that collection. And I think those are my books. Those are really great. And I'm always looking for good memoir. But as you know, it's like, there's sometimes hard to find the diamonds in the rough in memoir because it's like it can lend itself to a kind of like there's like celebrity memoir and stuff like which you really don't learn much about the person that way. But it's like these are great recommendations for like memoirs that take you into a broader perspective, but told through the particularity of one person's story. What about you, Medea? What did you what books did you really like this year? So I gave this a lot of thought because I read books this year. <laughs> but in the end, the first one that I thought of sort of eclipsed all the rest in a way where it felt to me like not quite right to put them on a list together. <laughs> and that's because I read The Subtology by Jan Fossa. I think that's how you say his name. You might see it on a bookshelf and say John Fossey. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to try and say Yun Fossa. It's a subtology. It's a collection of seven books, obviously. And it's quite long. It's about, about a thousand pages, I think. It's published by Transit Books, which is a wonderful small press based in Oakland. He just won the Nobel Prize, so I am not alone in feeling like this book and this writer are particularly exceptional. And it's, it is about an old man, a painter. The way that I've described it to friends sometimes is if, it's like if Virginia Woolf was like an old Norwegian man <laughs> obsessed with painting. Um, and it was, it's kind of like, I'll go get the rosaries myself. It's also extremely Catholic. And it's interior, it's, it's modernist interiority. It's one sentence after another. There's almost no punctuation. There might be no punctuation, actually. But it's like this, it's truly an incredible, like, the effect is less powerful when it's excerpted. And it's truly cumulative, I think. And, and it felt like sitting and, and reading through seven of these books was, like, particularly powerful. But it's about this old man. He's a painter, and he's sort of looking back at his life and the various decisions that he's made. There are some doubles in the book where you're not quite certain if he's talking about a man with the same name as him and with the same profession who looks very much like himself, or he's talking about himself in sort of an alternate time or an alternate world. And it's really, I mean, it's kind of a meditation on God, on faith, on art, and on mercy. And that's sort of something that I've kind of been thinking about, which is like, when do we deserve mercy and when do we ask for forgiveness for the things that that we've done? And I mean, I would highly, highly recommend it. The reason I could read it was because I was in Maine with no internet 
and nothing else to do. <laughs> I was going to ask where you where you got the time to read these seven volumes. but Exactly. So if you can figure out a way to seclude yourself for about three weeks, you could do it. But it, it's really, it's an exceptional book. And when I tried to think of others to put a similar tier as it almost everything else fell short, one book perhaps measured up a little bit. And that I would say was The Maniac by Benjamin Labatut. But yeah, Yun Fasse is my choice for 2023. I like the way that you described that book. It literally checks every single box. <laughs> like it is a meditation on faith, on mercy. It's about an artist's life. Like, you know, the backwards looking reflection. Like I can see why this was head and tails above any other book. Did he describe the paintings? Does he describe the paintings that he makes? I'm curious. He does. I mean, they're... They are less a description of actual figurative art than they are of sort of light and color. That's kind of the painter's obsession. His obsession is that he does he does do some figurative art, especially when he's a young man and he's kind of figuring out what his art is. But once he's older, there's one painting, but it's unclear what it actually is. Different people have ideas of what it depicts and he does too. But the goal or any description there is in it is of the light that emanates from it or recedes into it and the color or the colors that have been used to render that light visible or invisible. And so those are the descriptions. But you you do see other people sort of interacting with his work in ways that are separate from him and the way that he sees his own, his own work. But, I mean, his meditations on his work is like almost near constant. That's like a... And also potentially one of the things he needs to ask forgiveness for. Ooh. Mm. Wow. Well, congrats on that accomplishment. That's, I think that's a, you should feel proud. I I need to, I want to read like that. God, it's been a long time. And I read much more like our next topic, which is magazines. Let's get Scatterbrain magazine girl over here. Eric, (laughs) what was your favorite magazine of 2023? So my favorite magazines this year, one, I wanted to call out the return of Book Forum, which I find just really to be, I guess, a little bit of a shot in the arm during a, a year in which we saw so many magazines that a number of us really love, like clothes. And that's really hard. It's part of the tough reality of publishing right now. But to see one of those things that went away <laughs> managed to come back again was really exciting. The other two magazines that I really found myself reading a lot this year were Vanity Fair <laughs> for both the like, I love their like long form reporting pieces because most of them like you can see how there's such a clear like Vanity Fair article to like short mini streamer doc you know series pipeline because they're just written in such an evocative way so it's great reporting it's usually about something that feels a little bit like candy-like to consume because it is like pop culture or it's Hollywood or it's true crime, but it's just really, really great writing and obviously I'm sure really fabulous editing. 
But I always just find something in there I like, even if it's just me, you know, like kicking back in the bathtub and like flipping through the like the paper version. The other one, which is almost on the opposite side, is the London Review of Books, which I find I do not. It comes so frequently. It shocks me how many like you definitely get your money's worth with that annual subscription. But the London Review of Books, I always find something in there that really captures my attention and for which I really appreciate the long form of both the omnibus reviews that they publish there, as well as the political reporting. In fact, I would say that their political coverage is always really, really sharp analysis and like something that both like affirms something that I might believe, but also challenges me in interesting ways. So those were my favorite magazines from this year. Great. Yes. I'm often trying to like break the Vanity Fair paywall to get at something frantically and coming up against <laughs> it. Uh, but then they'll let me get a taste every month. And I'm like, ooh. You can get it for $8 a year. I don't need any more mags in my life. That's my problem. Yeah, that's but fair. I do, that's I fair. do love a little taste <laughs> once in a while. So my my magazine, it actually started in December of 2022. And that's Parapraxis, edited by Hannah Zevin. I think it's, it's a magazine about psychoanalysis and psychology and history and art. And I've heard many people say that like we're having a psychoanalytic moment or therapy moment. And I'm a big believer in that. I I think like maybe five or six of my friends in the last few years have become therapists, which is like the thing that people do when they are finding it hard to make money in art, but also because it's a wonderful thing to do. And it's such a the deepening of a kind of collective psychoanalytic consciousness is really exciting to me. If that really is a moment, you know, not, I don't like the therapy speak per se, but I think that deepening of psychology and it being a a kind of a common denominator among us is really exciting. And I feel like this magazine is helping lead the way in that. And I got their first issue, which was called The Family Problem. And it was looking at the compromised form of family, which I'm right there. I'm really excited about that magazine. Also, I want to, I know it's kind of obvious, but I want to shout out Harper's Magazine. I want to shout out Harper's. Oh, looks like I have another Harper's girl in the house. I was going to do the same. I was going to do the same, but you go first. Okay. Well, I'll just say, I'm not going to talk trash about The New Yorker. But I've been really disappointed with The New Yorker recently. I hate that they lost their listings, their cultural listings. I actually wrote a letter to the editor that was never answered and telling them I thought it was an awful idea. I'm very disappointed in in New Yorker. And that was kind of like my weekly standard. I always look forward to it. And I'm sure it's just a bad moment. They'll come back, I know. But so right now, the magazine that fills that void for me is Harper's. And it's so odd. The things they publish are strange. I I guess they're kind of, I can't quite parse their politics a lot of the times. (laughs) But there was one piece in Harper's. It was called Who Walks Always Beside You by Benjamin Hale. It was a ghost story set in Arkansas. I mean, it was a real life story about this girl who it really does seem like she was lost in the woods for a few days and she like met a ghost. And it's true that there had been this community, this cult living in the same place where she was lost and a little girl was murdered by the cult. And it seemed like she had met this little girl's ghost in the woods. It was an amazing, you know, it was, you know, oh it's kind God. of a little trashy, but it was really well written. It was a fascinating story to me. And I thought where, you know, it didn't need to be a book. 
it was a long piece and it was just perfect. It's why I read magazines for a story like that. So, and there's, they always have something good every issue. So going strong, Harper's many years later. I love it. What about you, Dea? Where were you reading? I'll piggyback on that. I was recently reading Harper's and also just so there's a new editor and oh. his first issue was just fantastic. I just read, I read a great piece by Rachel Kushner about celebrity encounters. There was a Ben Lerner piece. It was just, I mean, it was like, it was one good, solid, fun thing that I wanted to read after the other, which is like pretty tough, tough to achieve. It was like an A plus issue. And so agreed hats off to Harper's and yeah they're a little bit unclassifiable still a little bit old school in a way that's like kind of hard to maintain their online situation is (laughs) but but it's good it's a good magazine and agree Eric shout out to book forum so happy that they're back paper magazine is back which is also good news I think hopefully we'll see a resurgence of some of the closed closed magazines in the next year My other, I discovered a small magazine in the UK called Worms, which is kind of fun and funny and looks, looks pretty cool. And I, I think it's a little bit hard to find, but if you check it out online, I think you might be able to locate it. And then my other just general magazine suggestion is like, you know, I recently went to a magazine stand and just like flipped through stuff I had never heard of. And it's so fun. Yeah. So fun. And I'm just so glad magazines are around and that we get to be involved in them. And I hope everybody get a gift subscription for somebody as a holiday present. It's a great gift. A great gift. It's going to come month after month. It'll come really frequently in a way that maybe stresses them out. (laughs) But that's okay. (laughs) Totally. They might literally a a gift that keeps on giving. Exactly. All year long. All year long. Okay. So those are my magazine suggestions. Great suggestions. I'll check out Worms. One last quick shout out to the Paris Review, which of course is excellent, doesn't need our support, but Callie Siskel, our LARP's poetry editor, is in it this current winter issue. And so, wow, their taste is better than ever. <laughs> yeah, Review, that's fabulous. Congratulations, Callie. Yep. All right, well, let's move to movies. Eric, I know you always really shine in this category because you see a movie like every every day. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I actually felt this was kind of a like, and I don't think this is a controversial opinion, but I think this was kind of a like wah wah year for movies. Like it wasn't so great, especially the last like couple of months because of the strike. There's just been kind of a dearth of exciting things and movies that I was excited got moved back. I also want to say at the top here that while obviously Barbie and Oppenheimer are all that anybody seems to be able to talk about, I did enjoy but did not love those movies. Like, I thought they were fine. But the movies that I did love this year were Saltburn, which was directed and written by Emerald Fennell, who also did A Promising Young Woman, as well as a couple of other projects that you're probably familiar with. This was fabulous. It's everything that I loved about A Promising Young Woman, which is Emerald Fennell's really strange and campy sensibility. So she takes these like, it's a social critique as anybody who's read anything about the movie knows, but it's done in such a like lurid camp style that it is both like incredibly 
hilarious at moments that should not be hilarious, but also beautiful to look at. And it really made me think for like days and weeks after that movie came out just about like, what was actually going on? What were we supposed to make of this? It's fantastic. Really, really great. I also love there was a Belgian film this uh, came out earlier this year called Close, directed by Lucas Daunt. That is a really interesting, it's a quiet kind of movie about two young boys who are, and I won't spoil it, but it's like they're friends and then they have a very intimate relationship that then kind of falls apart and watching it fall apart and reckoning with this development of like going from a boy to a teenager was really beautifully done and like very haunting and moving. On the more fun side of things, I really loved Bottoms, which was directed by Emma Seligman and written by Emma Seligman and Rachel Senat. This is like, it really reminded me of a much older movie called But I'm a Cheerleader with Natasha Lyonne. And it has that same kind of very campy, it actually references that movie directly at one point. Yeah, it's the same kind of campy, like, wait, what? And it's basically if you took like a standard red-blooded hetero male high school movie, but made it with like lesbians. And it's there's a fight club at the middle of it. It is hilarious, really great, just and hysterical performances. I laughed from the beginning to the end. The last two that I have are uh, this one. I also laughed, but it's deeply uncomfortable. But I think all of the people who are writers or who have writers in the family are familiar with this. But it was director Nicole Hall of Center's You Hurt My Feelings with uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. As a writer whose husband, she overhears saying he didn't really like her novel. And this is like any writer's nightmare is hearing that like a loved one has been like gassing you up but doesn't really like your writing. And it's so deeply human watching how they kind of get back at each other and fight with each other about it. But it is hilarious and also very moving. The last one is seems very much out of left field, but it's director Chad Stileski's John Wick Chapter 4. The John Wick movies are not something I could have imagined three years ago telling you that I would have been so excited for the final installment. But they are, they're nothing that I should like. They're all blood and gore and violence. But it is so beautifully done. And it's all about a man who goes on a killing spree because because Russian thugs basically killed his dog in the first movie. And it is wonderful. Keanu Reeves is wonderful. Cannot recommend the whole series enough if you just want something where you can kind of turn your brain off and just enjoy Keanu Reeves fighting his way through all the major metropolitan cities. Mm. So those were my favorite movies this year. What about you guys? I'm a real dog lover, so maybe I should check that out. I, okay, so my, you know that I don't really go to the movies very much. That's, I'm really trying to work on that. We do know that. Yeah. So the film that came out this year that I chose was Our Body by Claire Simon, which uh, I spoke to Claire for the podcast. It's a documentary. It all takes place in the gynecological ward of a hospital, a public hospital in Paris. And it moves from, it's a very like cinema verite. It moves kind of from appointment to appointment of, patients speaking with their doctors. It covers every kind of health, you know, concern one could have from birth to transitioning to cancer to abortion, infertility. And then there's an amazing birth scene, actually. And then there's a death scene. 
in it. And it's just, it's a deeply human film. It's the doctors, the care that they show their patients is incredible. Claire Simon, the director, actually gets diagnosed with cancer during the shooting. And you see the scene and she's crying and she says, like, I'm so glad I've been making this movie because I I understand this more now differently having made this film. And you see that she can, she's really come to terms with the way the hospital works, the way that illness works. And you, I think she has probably more confidence that she's going to be okay having seen the workings of the hospital or just has accepted illness as a part of life much more. So it was very powerful. I cried the entire time. And, you know, it made me, infuriated me once again that we do not have public health care in this country. It really pushes it home, you know, when you see people and no one is talking about how they're going to pay for their care. And that's never a concern. So it's aspirational. And I also, you know, the, the director, William Friedkin, who directed The Exorcist, he died this year. So there's been a retrospective of his work at the American Cinematheque here. And I went to finally go see this movie called To Live and Die in L.A. that I've heard about for a long time. And it's like the greatest movie. Like it, I think the thing about Friedkin to me, at least the few movies I've seen of his, is it seems like they should be schlocky movies. Like if they were made now, they probably would be terrible, but they're amazing. Even the other film I've seen of his is Cruising. I've actually never seen The Exorcist, so I'm going to see that. It's like Cruising is a very cringe movie at times. It's uncomfortable. It was, um, it was picketed when it was made, like by the Cade community, but at the same time, I almost, maybe I've already mentioned this on the pod. Anyways, it's like he takes it to this next level where you're shocked and the locations are amazing. Just something unexpected happens in all his films and to live and die in LA is the same way. Like the opening scene is, you're just like, what is going on? And every single location is so perfect. The most classic LA, but not at all cliche. Like whoever was doing locations on that movie did an amazing job. It's like nonstop thrills. It does have an element of camp. It's full of character actors. The car chases are genuinely thrilling. It's the kind of thing that you can see replicated in kind of more hackneyed ways, but when it really hits, it's so fun. So just for pure entertainment, To Live and Die in LA by William Friedkin. And then finally, I just saw May, December, Todd Haynes' new film, and um, I thought it was great, but I was just so impressed by the screenplay by Sammy Birch, I believe is the woman's name, who wrote this script, and it was really well done. Very thought-provoking, perfect, like not a not an off note. I thought so too. That film is also like so complicated in how it's referencing the kind of tabloid history that it comes out of. Like those music stings that happen between like each scene where it's like and you're like, that's a 1985, like, you know, or like the early 90s, like kind of after school special or date line. Well, yeah, I thought that was the camp element yeah, that Todd Hayes was bringing that yeah. I that I loved and I thought was made kind of a such a hilarious punctuation to certain moments and the actor who played the boy you know the boy turned into a man who had hooked up with a much older woman I really did think he was fabulous yes so yes I really enjoyed the film but I know there are many more that I know not what I speak of so that's my very those are great limited picks. selection Medea what are your choices I wanted to see May December I was going to watch it couple of nights ago and then I didn't have time and so I feel like it would have made the cut if I had seen it 
but I'm looking forward to seeing it. Okay, so my picks that are from 2023, I didn't have so many because, yeah, Eric, I kind of agree with you. It wasn't too big. The big movie event of this year wasn't quite for me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, okay, so, but I've got three. One is The Beauty and the Bloodshed, which technically came out in 22, but I watched it in 23. It's a movie, it's a documentary by Laura Poitras, and we did have her on this show. And it's about Nan Golden and her work, but also her advocacy against the opioid pushers. The Sacklers. And pharmaceutical, the Sacklers, right? And it's a beautiful documentary, but it's also such a pleasure just to see Nan's work. And sort of go, you know, I'm a real sucker for, like, a New York downtown scene. It's like, all, it show me that all day long. And I'll, all I'll be is, like, nostalgic and sad that I wasn't even born for it. But, so that's a good one. And then my other two, one is Killers of a Flower Moon, which I saw. And is really is as fantastic as people say it is. It's a Martin Scorsese movie, if you've not heard of it. I won't tell you here because <laughs> it will take too long. It's an incredible story. It's also like a pretty devastating history and an indictment of the United States at large, I would say. And then third is Priscilla by mm. Sofia Coppola. Oh, yeah. Okay. And this I have to say, I didn't love Priscilla the movie, but I did. I went alone. I had a burger. I sat in a row of women drinking wine. (laughs) And it was, you know, it was a Sofia Coppola picture. It was beautifully constructed. There were really lovely interiors. It was a girl caught in a gilded cage who didn't quite want to be there, but was trapped there because of love, which is, or family or obligation and womanhood, which is just sort of her perennial theme. And the experience was really nice. So I'm separating the film from the experience a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a good time is what you're saying. I had a good time. My reservation about the movie is that it's kind of the same scene over and over again. Yeah. But it's a kind, it is a beautiful scene. So anyway. If you're high on red meat, it works out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're feeling... Full and happy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a great movie to watch. And then an honorable mention for two oldies that I watched this year. One is An American in Paris, which is a 1950s musical with Gene Kelly. That is like truly incredible. Truly incredible. The and production. The mastery. Yeah. The incredible. production yeah. is incredible. I mean, like the colors, the sets. The dancing, the choreography, all of it was just, like, mind-blowing. I would really recommend it. And then two is Party Girl, which is from 95, and it's got Parker Posey and a whole crew of young cuties partying in New York in the 90s. And as I said, like, that's my candy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm so jealous of any young person who's never seen that before and gets to rediscover it or discover it, shall I say. That's, yeah, that's yeah. one of my faves. You know, I also forgot, I wanted to quickly just shout out that Los Angeles is having a film of Renaissance right now. And especially on the east side of town where I live. And it's really exciting how many movie mm-hmm. theaters there are opening, opening 
We have wow, that's great. Yeah, Vidiots now Instant Image Hall twenty two twenty opened last year, but that's a great place to see film. I really love the American Cinematheque at Los Feliz three. It's just like from going from nothing and feeling like you know all these you know even the the arc light shuttered, the Cinerama wow. Dome is still closed. Just feeling like maybe things yeah. wouldn't survive the pandemic to this time where it's almost like an embarrassment of riches. It's very hopeful. So similar to the magazines, I'm feeling a resurgence that makes me happy. Nice. Should we move from the big screen to the small screen? What did you guys like this year in terms of TV? Why don't you go, Eric? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Kate doesn't really watch TV. Only bad TV. (laughs) So I want to give like a quick shout out. I did challenge myself to just choose three that were brand new this year because there were the second seasons of Loki from Disney, Our Flag Means Death from HBO, and another Taika Waititi production, which is What We Do in the Shadows, which I believe is on Hulu. Those were appointment viewing in our household and thoroughly enjoyed all of those seasons, as well as season 13, currently still running, of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which (laughs) if you know, you know, but I am telling you, girl, it is worth it. Dive in. It is such (laughs) such a hot mess, and it is enriched by all the seasons that I've watched before. But those shining returning stars aside, there were three shows that I really got into. One was Netflix's One Piece, which is an adaptation of the Japanese manga. One Piece, it is not something that I would have thought I ever would have liked. And to prepare for watching this, my husband and I actually watched the anime version and could not get through two episodes of it, but found ourselves binging the live action series. It's really fun. It's very heartwarming. And it is also, I think, like shows a really, really strong example of how to adapt from one comic medium or manga medium to a live action kind of production, which is usually done quite terribly. But this was really great. The other thing is, and Dea, this I was definitely thinking of you when I was putting this list together, is Drag Race Mexico. (laughs) Its first season was this year. It is unreal. It is like every runway. They are the hardest working queens in the world. (laughs) The looks were all insane. Every runway, like a regular show, the runways were like five different looks. And then it's like, oh, also you'll have 15 minutes to rehearse and do choreography for a 30 minute show that we're just going to do now. Like it was unreal, insane, and so great. And the talent, again, it is the first season. So they are like drawing probably the strongest of all possible competitors. But every single one of them was amazing. And the final group was a thrill to watch from the beginning of the season all the way to the end. Cannot recommend enough. And my last show that I really enjoyed this year was Jury Duty, which some of you may have heard of it. It's basically, it's a mockumentary where there is one guy who is, everybody is an actor, including the judge, the case is fake, all the other jurists are fake, except one guy who believes he knows he's on a reality show filming people doing their first year in jury duty, and they just throw everything they can at this guy. Everything is crazy and over the top. But he, every episode, he's goofy and kind of dorky, but then he is so deeply human and refreshingly compassionate with like the craziness that he sees around him that it really like, I hate to say this, it sounds like I'm overselling it, but it really like, gave me hope for humanity that like a guy like this could just be so 
genuinely kind to the people around him. And it is also hilarious to watch. And James Marsden plays a version of him, of his real life self in there as kind of a foil to this guy. And it is, it is just hilarious and heartwarming the whole way through. Highly recommend. Oh my God, that showed, it does sound slightly abusive though. Everyone's in on the joke except for one person. Yes, Uh, uh. so you do feel that, but then he's just so nice about it that it doesn't feel cringe. It never really feels cringe in that way. And I think he's still friends with many of his like co-actors because they also fell in love with him too. And also the last thing that I'll say about that show is just from a production standpoint, you realize what a high wire act it is to basically be doing a Truman show in real life. You know, like he cannot know. And there's at one point afterwards, the directors were like, yeah, we started to get worried because he was actually really interested in the case and like moving forward before we had actually storyboarded what the case was going to be. So it's just a high wire production act, but also just a, it's just beautiful. I really, really enjoyed it. Wow. That sounds great. I don't have a TV show because I'm not going to tell people to watch <laughs> what I watch and or to watch something like super normie, like the Kate. Kate, that's why we're here. No, I I was going to suggest the one, something I watched on Netflix. It was like a limited series with the Beckham doc. Nice. Okay. I loved it. Tell us about it. Well, I wanted, because we didn't do podcast this year, I wanted to make a little room for podcast, a serial thing. I thought it was, this is something that I did really enjoy. It's also kind of normie. It was called The Retrievals. It was a a serial production. New York Times, you know, This American Life production. It's about this case that happened at the Yale Fertility Clinic where a nurse was actually siphoning all the fentanyl from the women who would have been getting painkillers for their retrievals and taking it for herself because she was addicted to drugs. So women would be having like these incredibly painful procedures with absolutely no drugs. And many of them were, you know, they were high-powered women who worked at Yale as doctors, some of them, so some of them, or nurses, so some of them knew. They would say, like, I know exactly what's happening. I really don't have any pain meds. And then they would be made to feel insane. They'd be gaslighted, and people would get angry and say, like, I gave you all the pain meds. What do you want? So no one was taking their pain seriously. And so that's the the already crazy, hard-to-believe part but then it follows the story throughout. They're, they're never able to talk to the nurse who is stealing the drugs. So you don't really get her perspective. But it is very fair, I think, fair-minded in looking at the whole story from a lot of different angles, kind of talking about criminal justice, retribution, good and evil, addiction. Like, I thought it was very, very well done. And in that serial way where it kind of is telling you exactly where you are in the narrative and what's going to happen. I enjoy the kind of narrative manipulation that I felt myself being subjected to. The storytelling was really like so on point, almost a little too much where you're like, Jesus, like back off, you know, but I really, it was a great ride and it was very thought provoking. That sounds great. It was. It really is. Yeah. I'm going to return to TV. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Because I'm not ashamed. (laughs) And all right, so my recommendations, like recently I've really been recommending couples therapy Mm, to everybody. Not just that they go to a couples therapist, which they probably should, but the show Couples Therapy, it's on Showtime. It's filmed sessions with a therapist named Orna. 
and it's real life couples talking through their actual problems on TV. It really like scratches a voyeur itch that I have in terms of like wanting to know what happens in other people's relationships. And that part is kind of satisfying. But the best part about it is watching her sort of decode the various ways in which people relay their feelings and narratives to her and the ways in which like people sort of know exactly how to press each other's buttons and know what to say precisely to hurt the other person and knowing that they're going to say it and kind of watching her manage all of that while also providing a really astute, constantly pretty, what seems to be like effective therapeutic analysis and feedback. It can be really fun to watch. And also, you know, I think with some of these couples, you kind of realize later on in the show that, oh, whatever they've said is going on is actually not quite what's happening. They're not lying, but there's like so much underneath in terms of the way that they are understanding and treating each other that like whatever they've presented here to her is actually not the full story. And that that part is like kind of fun. So couples therapy also makes you like a good amateur therapist. Just borrow some lines from Orna. And then Succession. Oh, I heard, I did watch year. that. I did watch that. Um, that was great. Yeah, excellent show. I don't think we really need me to get into it. If you've not watched it, highly recommend it. It will be a lot of fun. And then the other show that I would recommend is called The Other Two, which also ended this year. It's a comedy. Have you either of you guys ever seen it? No. It's a comedy about a 13-year-old boy who becomes famous by having a viral hit. And then it's about his siblings, the other two, a sister and a brother who desperately want to be famous. And all of the various, it's very funny. It's a hilarious, like, send-up of Hollywood and, like, things going viral and the things that people do to get famous. And essentially every bad thing this family does makes them more and more successful and it's super great what's that one called again really recommend it's called the other two i'll check that out that sounds great okay so i'll i'll run in really quickly with music it's all spoiler alert like extremely gay this is why spotify (laughs) rap said that i belong in cambridge massachusetts which for those of you they oh they did cambridge gay I don't think so particularly, but they sorted people that who had obviously gay musical tastes into like three places, Berkeley, California, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I forget where the other place was. Not a place where I know, I mean, there are gay people there, but it's not like places that I know is like being particularly gay mech. Or do you think they're picking up on your academic vibes? Is that why they're suggesting those places? No, okay, no, no, this was literally like an internet thing. Like everybody who was gay got these as their suggested Uh-oh. cities. Worrying. It's what? Very, very, very troubling. Yeah. Okay. See you next Next year on the East Coast, I guess, Medea. Um, so, uh, but my favorites were because I'm in my middle-aged lady millennial era. I loved Olivia Rodrigo's guts. It was just so much fun, like pop, you know, whatever. It's just fun. It's fun. Troy Siobhan, I also really enjoyed this year. Every single song was a banger. It made me wish that I was still in my 20s, which few things these days do, but that album definitely did. And it was cool just to see this guy who's gone from like kind of a a YouTube thing to like kind of very 
forthrightly gay content. Like it's a pop star that's not like singing around it, but like that kind of is a testament to the moment that we're in. And the bops also, they all slapped. They were great. The other one was like every other gay man this summer, I think I could not get Kylie Minogue's Padam Padam out of my head. So that was definitely also the soundtrack to this season, as well as a challenge to Mariah's dominance of the holiday era or moment with um, Cher's new DJ play a Christmas song. It sounds cheesy. It is cheesy. It's totally Cher. And it's amazing. I haven't been able to stop singing it for weeks. Oh, I I heard a little bit of that share song. It's awesome. Okay. I have a real problem. I guess this is like a a theme for me. I have a real problem with new. I don't know. Like, I don't know about new music. It's hard for me to listen. The Andre 3000 album that just came out, I'm excited about. Definitely going to listen to that. But I, I do not really keep up with new music, which... I feel ashamed of, but I am trying to always find new cumbia that I like. And somehow mm. this year, like, I can't remember quite how I found Celso Pina, who is, um, was a Mexican cumbia artist uh, of the cumbia rebajado, which is the slower cumbia. I came across him somehow and I love his music and perfect style for me, like really, you know, heavy on the accordion, my favorite instrument, Mm -hmm. wailing harder than the guitar for me these days. I just, I'm so happy to keep on learning about that genre, that beautiful wide genre. And um, I didn't mention this album last year, but this Arthur Russell album called Love is Overtaking Me, which is kind of like his quasi country album, which came out after his death in 2008, has been one of my absolute favorite albums of the last couple years. And I really recommend it to anyone who likes Arthur Russell. You might think of him as more of like a ambient sounds kind of guy, but he also yeah. has can sing a beautiful country, country-esque song, kind of folk song. It's such a great, like almost every song on there is it's wonderful. The lyrics are funny and strange. And also I really want to get into house music. I'm like finally coming around and um, yes. this will be coming to the dark this side. This will be my ah. year. <laughs> this will be my year. I'm, I, of course, because I'm having some '90s uh, retrograde, and yes. I just need to. I'm like starting with like in the dorkiest places, like Apple playlist, Chicago house. So that's how I'm learning. But by the end of next year, I will. I will have become an aficionado. So, Dea, love it. Okay, I'm gonna be really quick this because mine is pretty straightforward. My big one was Lana Del Rey. I just listened Mm. to that album kind of over and over again. I think she might be a genius. I am interested in why she's working at a Waffle House in Michigan or wherever she is. I think that was not real. (laughs) Oh, you think, Kate? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And that's my music pick of the year. The other thing I listened to a lot was Raffi. Because Aww. that's what oh, made the baby yes, happy. Oh, yes, because the kid, yeah, yeah. Oh, my um, God. It's so, so Raffi's great the second one. that's still around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so sweet. That's it. Okay, well, on that wholesome note, let's get into scandals. Something scandalous <sighs> right. that took you this year. Go, Eric. So my scandal this year that I can't stop thinking about is the George Santos scandal. It is, on the one hand, we are like minutes away from whatever version of like the docuseries about his life is going to be, or more likely the kind of lightly fictionalized adaptation. But what 
I find so wild about the Santos story is that like now he is making and people are paying quite a bit of money for him to do stuff on Cameo. He's going to have, and this is what's dangerous, I think, about this post-Trump world is like, Santos seems harmless because he's just a liar and a fraudster. So he's not quite like Trump in that way, but he's cartoonish. And I feel he's going to come out of this being like a kind of anti-hero that everybody loves because he's campy and crazy and he's a diva and he's gay. But it's like, this is scary. Like this is a man who lied his way into office and like now seems to be like, we'll see what happens with the legal cases, I guess. So there may be consequences, but it feels a little strange and worrying to me how he's now become kind of like a camp cultural icon that I feel like I see excerpted on social media feeds all the time in like humorous ways. Yeah. My scandal of the year, I can't say it's my favorite scandal, but it's one that's really gripped me is the art forum scandal, which is a recent. Yeah, it's a big one. So what happened? Yes, it's a big one. So in October, shortly after the October 7th attacks, art forum, posted a letter signed by many, many people from around the world, basically standing against violence and war in Palestine and calling for the freedom of Palestine and later redacted and added that they were against violence of all forms in the October 7th attacks. Yes, some people thought it was insensitive because it didn't mention or decry the Hamas attacks as well at first. But it was also, it's we've seen letters like this circulating everywhere, but it it really bothered people in the art world. They, you know, funders were saying they were going to pull out, or I mean, advertisers were saying they were going to pull out, you know, collectors were getting angry and saying they were going to decommission artists whose, whose names were on the letter. Um, and then this is all from an article that I read in The Intercept. And subsequently, David Velasco, who helmed Art Forum since 2017, was fired by Penske Media. It's just one of those stories where it kind of boggles the mind. I mean, first of all, it seems so ironic in uh, something that's supposedly as transgressive as Art Forum, you know, or as politically minded that this one position is, everything else is fine, but this one position for people is just not tenable. I find that very interesting. And just these kind of fractures in um, the art world, you know, it would seem like it's so irrelevant. And, you know, of course, compared to the suffering in the Middle East right now, it is, it means nothing. It's dumb, but it's actually caused so many people to lose their jobs here in this country. And I've been so surprised at this just swift firing of people for speaking out for Palestine. It really is shocking. And I understand the complexity and the history of anti-Semitism. I'm an American Jew, but the way it has roiled the community is so shocking. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's a really big one. It's a big issue. Okay, I didn't have like a favorite scandal this year. The art form one I really paid attention to and George Santos, I agree, Eric. It's happening really fast almost. I feel like that kind of like yes. scandal to cult figure to like camp celeb dancing at the stars kind of pipeline mm-hmm. <laughs> is really mm-hmm. is happening super fast. I was kind of interested in the Goodreads scandal that I thought was kind of funny. What was the Goodreads scandal? It's an author who made a bunch of fake accounts on Goodreads and posted negative reviews of other authors' books so that she could have another <laughs> one debut. Um, 
and okay, that, that'll be mine because it's low stakes enough that I feel like I can commit to it. So nothing better than a niche, very low stakes scandal to rock a publishing, the publishing world. And Goodreads is, I think, a pretty silly website. <laughs> you seem so ambivalent. Maybe you could, did you have anything like a favorite thing? Something that you're just like, wow, I'm so grateful for this thing. Maybe you want to offer that in addition. Okay, I'll do one. I have a thing. Okay, I do have a thing. Thing that I felt most grateful for this year was a notebook and a pen. Because I have tried for many, many years to make to-do lists online, to keep things organized in a digital calendar, to communicate with people digitally. (laughs) And yet, somehow, it's just so much easier and nicer to just write it in a notebook. This is not at all like a revolutionary realization. But then you can also doodle in it. I've got little drawings in it. I've got, you can experiment with like different ways to organize. You can buy fancy pens. So the thing that I carried around and was most grateful for this year was a little red notebook that actually I'm holding right now that I can hold up and show you guys. Ooh. And it has my Ooh, list of favorite beautiful. stuff of the year in it. So I'm using it as we speak. Ooh, nice. I'm also a a physical list writer. I find that so much easier than clicking things off on any number of ads. Yeah. I love my composition book as well. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) Paper and a pen. The revolution has begun. Paper and a pen is coming back. (laughs) Uh, Well, we're getting back to the basics here. And let's hope that in 2024, we get a little bit back to those basics with the looming threat of AI right. and the yes. violence across the world, let's all find solace in our, in our papers and pens. Gorgeous. What a beautiful way to wrap it up, Kate. Beautiful way to wrap it up. Well, um, I will always look forward to discussing our favorite things from the air with the two of you and it's giving me hope for the future. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be together. All right. See you guys next year. That was our best of the year edition. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.